Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 221, Thomas Reed on Human Prejudices and Common Causes of Error. Essays on the Intellectual Powers of Man, Essay 6, Chapter 8, of Prejudices, the Causes of Error. Our intellectual powers are wisely fitted by the author of our nature for the discovery of truth, as far as suits our present state. Error is not their natural output, any more than disease is of the natural structure of the body. Yet we are as liable to various diseases of body from accidental causes, external and internal, so we are, from like causes, liable to wrong judgments. When we know a disorder of the body, we are often at a loss to find the proper remedy, but in most cases the disorders of the understanding point out their remedies so plainly that he who knows the one must know the other. Many authors have furnished useful materials for this purpose, and some have endeavored to reduce them to a system. I like best the general division given of them by Lord Bacon in his fifth book, De Augmentis Scientiarum, and more fully treated in his Novum Organum. He divides them into four classes, Idula Tribus, Idula Specus, Idula Fori, and Idula Theatri. The names are perhaps fanciful, but I think the division judicious, like most of the productions of that wonderful genius, and as this division was first made by him, he may be indulged the privilege of giving names to its several members. I propose in this chapter to explain the several members of this division according to the meaning of the author, and to give instances of each without confining myself to those which Lord Bacon has given, and without pretending to a complete enumeration. To every bias of the understanding by which a man may be misled into judging or drawn into error, Lord Bacon gives the name of an idol. The understanding, in its natural and best state, pays its homage to truth only. The causes of error are considered by him as so many false deities who receive the homage which is due only to truth. The first class are the idula tribus, idols of the tribe. These are such as beset the whole human species, so that every man is in danger from them. They arise from principles of the human constitution, which are highly useful and necessary in our present state, but by their excess or defect or wrong direction may lead us into error. As the active principles of the human frame are wisely contrived by the author of our being for the direction of our actions, and yet without proper regulation and restraint are apt to lead us wrong, so it is also with regard to those parts of our constitution that have influence upon our opinions. Of this we may take the following instances. First, men are prone to be led too much by authority in their opinions. In the first part of life we have no other guide, and without a disposition to receive implicitly what we are taught, we should be incapable of instruction and incapable of improvement. When judgment is ripe, there are many things in which we are incompetent judges. In such matters, it is most reasonable to rely upon the judgment of those whom we believe to be competent and disinterested. The highest court of judicature in the nation relies upon the authority of lawyers and physicians in matters belonging to their respective professions. 
Even in matters which we have access to know, authority will have, and ought to have, more or less weight in proportion to the evidence on which our own judgment rests, and the opinion we have of the judgment and candor of those who differ from us or agree with us. The modest man, conscious of his own fallibility in judging, is in danger of giving too much to authority, the arrogant of giving too little. In all matters belonging to our cognizance, every man must be determined by his own final judgment, otherwise he does not act the part of a rational being. Authority may add weight to one scale, but the man holds the balance and judges what weight he ought to allow to authority. If a man should even claim infallibility, we must judge of his title to that prerogative. If a man pretend to be an ambassador from heaven, we must judge of his credentials. No claim can deprive us of this right or excuse us for neglecting to exercise it. As, therefore, our regard to authority may be either too great or too small, the bias of human nature seems to lean to the first of these extremes, and I believe it is good for men in general that it should do so. When this bias occurs with an indifference about truth, its operation will be the more powerful. The love of truth is natural to man, and strong in every well-disposed mind, but it may be overcome by party zeal, by vanity, by the desire of victory, or even by laziness. When it is superior to these, it is a manly virtue and requires the exercise of industry, fortitude, self-denial, candor, and openness to conviction. As there are persons in the world of so mean and abject a spirit that they rather choose to owe their subsistence to the charity of others than by industry to acquire some property of their own, so there are many more who may be called mere beggars with regard to their opinions. Through laziness and indifference about truth, they leave to others the drudgery of digging for this commodity. They can have enough at second hand to serve their occasions. Their concern is not to know what is true, but what is said and thought on such subjects. And their understanding, like their clothes, is cut according to the fashion. This distemper of the understanding has taken so deep a root in a great part of mankind it can hardly be said that they use their own judgment in things that do not concern their temporal interests. Nor is it peculiar to the ignorant. It infects all ranks. We may guess their opinions when we know where they were born, of what parents, how educated, and what company they have kept. These circumstances determine their opinions in religion, in politics, and in philosophy. A second general prejudice arises from a disposition to measure things less known and less familiar by those that are better known and more familiar. This is the foundation of analogical reasoning, to which we have a great proneness by nature, and to it, indeed, we owe a great part of our knowledge. It would be absurd to lay aside this kind of reasoning altogether, and it is difficult to judge how far we may venture upon it. The bias of human nature is to judge from two slight analogies. The objects of sense engross our thoughts in the first part of life and are most familiar through the whole of it. Hence, in all ages, men have been prone to attribute the human figure and human passions and frailties to superior intelligences and even to the supreme being. There is a disposition in men to materialize everything, if I may be allowed the expression, 
that is, to apply the notions we have of material objects to things of another nature. Thought is considered as analogous to motion in a body, and as bodies are put in motion by impulses and by impressions made upon them by contiguous objects, we are apt to conclude that the mind is made to think by impressions made upon it, and that there must be some kind of contiguity between it and the objects of thought. Hence the theories of ideas and impressions have so generally prevailed. Because the most perfect works of human artists are made after a model and of materials that before existed, the ancient philosophers universally believed that the world was made of a pre-existent, uncreated matter, and many of them that there were eternal and uncreated models of every species of things which God made. The mistakes in human life which are owing to this prejudice are innumerable and cannot escape the slightest observation. Men judge of other men by themselves or by the small circle of their acquaintance. The selfish man thinks all pretense to benevolence and public spirit to be mere hypocrisy or self-deceit. The generous and open-hearted believe fair pretenses too easily and are apt to think men better than they really are. The abandoned and profligate can hardly be persuaded that there is any such thing as real virtue in the world. The rustic forms his notions of the manners and characters of men from those of his country village and is easily duped when he comes into a great city. It is commonly taken for granted that this narrow way of judging of men is to be cured only by an extensive interaction with men of different ranks, professions, and nations and that the man whose acquaintance has been confined within a narrow circle must have many prejudices and narrow notions which a more extensive interaction would have cured. 3. Men are often led into error by the love of simplicity, which disposes us to reduce things to few principles, and to conceive a greater simplicity in nature than there really is. To love simplicity, and to be pleased with it wherever we find it, is no imperfection, but the contrary, it is the result of good taste. We cannot but be pleased to observe that all the changes of motion produced by the collision of bodies, hard, soft, or elastic, are reducible to three simple laws of motion, which the industry of philosophers has discovered. When we discover what a prodigious variety of effects depend upon the law of gravitation, how many phenomena in the earth, sea, and air, which in all preceding ages had tortured the wits of philosophers and occasioned a thousand vain theories, are shown to be the necessary consequences of this one law, how the whole system of sun, moon, planets, primary and secondary, and comets are kept in order by it, and their seeming irregularities accounted for and reduced to accurate measure, the simplicity of the cause, and the beauty and variety of the effects must give pleasure to every contemplative mind. By this noble discovery we are taken, as it were, behind the scene in this great drama of nature, and made to behold some part of the art of the divine author of this system, which before this discovery I had not seen, nor ear heard, nor had it entered into the heart of man to conceive. There is, without doubt, in every work of nature, all the beautiful simplicity that is consistent with the end for which it was made. But if we hope to discover how nature brings about its ends, merely from this principle that it operates in the simplest and best way, we deceive ourselves and forget that the wisdom of nature is more above the wisdom of man than man's wisdom is above that of a child.
If a child should sit down to contrive how a city is to be fortified or an army arranged in the day of battle, he would no doubt conjecture what, according to his understanding, appeared the simplest and best way. But could he ever hit upon the true way? No, surely. When he learns from fact how these effects are produced, he will then see how foolish his childish conjectures were. We may learn something of the way in which nature operates from fact and observation, but if we conclude that it operates in such a manner only because to our understanding that appears to be the best and simplest manner, we shall always go wrong. It was believed for many ages that all the variety of concrete bodies we find on this globe is reducible to four elements of which they are compounded and to into which they may be resolved. It was the simplicity of this theory, and not any evidence from fact, that made it to be so generally received. For the more it is examined, we find the less ground to believe it. It was long believed that all the qualities of bodies and all their medical virtues were reducible to four, moisture and dryness, heat and cold, and that there are only four temperaments of the human body, the sanguine, the melancholy, the bilious, and the phlegmatic. The chemical system of reducing all bodies to salt, sulfur, and mercury was of the same kind. For how many ages did men believe that the division of all the objects of thought into ten categories, and of all that can be affirmed or denied of anything into five universals or predicables, were perfect enumerations? The evidence from reason that could be produced for those systems was next to nothing, and bore no proportion to the ground they gained in the belief of men. But they were simple and regular and reduced things to a few principles, and this made up for their lack of evidence. When the Trinity's Podcast returns, can human creativity be abused? One of the most copious sources of error in philosophy is the misapplication of our noblest intellectual power to purposes for which it is incompetent. Of all the intellectual powers of man, that of invention bears the highest price. It resembles most the power of creation and is honored with that name. We admire the man who shows a superiority in the talent of finding the means of accomplishing an end who can, by a happy combination, produce an effect or make a discovery beyond the reach of other men, who can draw important conclusions from circumstances that commonly pass unobserved, who judges with the greatest sagacity of the designs of other men and the consequences of his own actions. To this superiority of understanding we give the name of genius and look up with admiration to everything that bears the marks of it. Yet, this power so highly valuable in itself and so useful in the conduct of life may be misapplied, and men of genius in all ages have been prone to apply it to purposes for which it is altogether incompetent. The works of men and the works of nature are not of the same order, 
The force of genius may enable a man perfectly to comprehend the former and see them to the bottom. What is contrived and executed by one man may be perfectly understood by another man. With great probability, he may from a part conjecture the whole, or from the effects may conjecture the causes, because they are effects of a wisdom not superior to his own. But the works of nature are contrived and executed by a wisdom and power infinitely superior to that of man. And when men attempt by the force of genius to discover the causes of the phenomena of nature, they have only the chance of going wrong more ingeniously. Their conjectures may appear very probable to beings no wiser than themselves, but they have no chance to hit the truth. They are like the conjectures of a child, how a ship of war is built, and how it is managed at sea. Let the man of genius try to make an animal, even the meanest, to make a plant, or even a single leaf of a plant, or a feather of a bird. He will find that all his wisdom and sagacity can bear no comparison with the wisdom of nature, nor his power with the power of nature. The experience of all ages shows how prone ingenious men have been to invent hypotheses to explain the phenomena of nature how fondly by a kind of anticipation to discover her secrets. Instead of a slow and gradual ascent in the scale of natural causes, by a just and copious induction, they would shorten the work, and by a flight of genius get to the top at once. This gratifies the pride of human understanding, but it is an attempt beyond our force. When a man has laid out all his ingenuity in fabricating a system, he views it with the eye of a parent, he strains phenomena to make them tally with it and make it look like the work of nature. The slow and patient method of induction, the only way to attain any knowledge of nature's work, was little understood until it was delineated by Lord Bacon and has been little followed since. It humbles the pride of man and puts him constantly in mind that his most ingenious conjectures with regard to the works of God are pitiful and childish. There is no room here for the favorite talent of invention, in the humble method of information, from the great volume of nature, we must receive all our knowledge of nature. What is beyond a just interpretation of that volume is the work of man, and the work of God ought not to be contaminated by any mixture with it. To a man of genius, self-denial is a difficult lesson in philosophy as well as in religion. To bring his fine imaginations and most ingenious conjectures to the fiery trial of experiment and induction, by which the greater part, if not the whole, will be found to be dross, is a humiliating task. This is to condemn him to dig in a mine when he would rather fly with the wings of an eagle. In all the fine arts whose end is to please, genius is deservedly supreme. In the conduct of human affairs, it often does wonders. But in all inquiries into the constitution of nature, it must act a subordinate part, ill-suited to the superiority it boasts. It may combine, but it must not fabricate. It may collect evidence, but must not make up for the lack of it by conjecture. It may display its powers by putting nature to the question in well-contrived experiments, but it must add nothing to her answers. 5. In avoiding one extreme, men are very apt to rush into the opposite. Thus, in undeveloped ages, men, unaccustomed to search for natural causes, ascribe every uncommon appearance to the immutable interpolation of invisible beings. 
But when philosophy has discovered natural causes of many events, which in the days of ignorance were ascribed to the immediate operation of gods or demons, they are apt to think that all the phenomena of nature may be accounted for in the same way, and that there is no need for an invisible maker and governor of the world. Less advanced men are, at first, disposed to ascribe intelligence and active power to everything they see move or undergo any change. When they come to be convinced of the folly of this extreme, they are apt to run to the opposite and to think that everything moves only as it is moved and acts as it is acted upon. Thus, from the extreme of superstition, the transition is easy to that of atheism, and from the extreme of ascribing activity to every part of nature to that of excluding it altogether and making even the determinations of intelligent beings the links of one fatal chain or the wheels of one great machine. 6. Men's judgments are often perverted by their affections and passions. This is so commonly observed and so universally acknowledged that it needs no proof nor illustration. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Reed moves on from considering idols common to human beings to a consideration of idols which have something to do with the individual. And he talks about some errors we see in our day on the part of scientists or mathematicians who move into apologetics or theology or philosophy. The second class of idols in Lord Bacon's division are the idola specus. These are prejudices which have their origin not from the constitution of human nature, but from something peculiar to the individual. These are prejudices which arise from the particular way in which a man has been trained, from his being addicted to some particular profession, or from something particular in the turn of his mind. A man whose thoughts have been confined to a certain track by his profession or manner of life is very apt to judge wrong when he ventures off that track. He is apt to draw everything within the sphere of his profession and to judge by its maxims of things that have no relation to it. The mere mathematician is apt to apply measure and calculation to things which do not admit of it. Direct and inverse ratios have been applied by an ingenious author to measure human affections and the moral worth of actions. An eminent mathematician attempted to ascertain by calculation the ratio in which the evidence of facts must decrease in the course of time and fixed the period when the evidence of the facts on which Christianity is founded shall become evanescent and when, in consequence, no faith shall be found on the earth. The ancient chemists were wont to explain all the mysteries of nature and even of religion by salt, sulfur, and mercury. John Locke, I think, mentions an eminent musician who believed that God created the world in six days and rested the seventh because there are but seven notes in music. I know one of that profession who thought that there could be only three parts in harmony, to wit, bass, tenor, and treble, because there are but three persons in the Trinity. 
the learned and ingenious Dr. Henry Moore, having very elaborately and methodically compiled his Enchiridium Metaphysicum and Enchiridium Ethicum, found all the divisions and subdivisions of both to be allegorically taught in the first chapter of Genesis. Thus, even very ingenious men are apt to make a ridiculous figure by drawing into the track in which their thoughts have long run things altogether foreign to it. Different persons, either from temper or from education, have different tendencies of understanding, which, by their excess, are unfavorable to sound judgment. Some have an undue admiration of antiquity and contempt of whatever is modern. Others go as far into the contrary extreme. It may be judged that the former are persons who value themselves upon their acquaintance with ancient authors, and the latter such as have little knowledge of this kind. Some are afraid to venture a step out of the beaten track and think it safest to go with the multitude. Others are fond of singularities and of everything that has the air of paradox. Some are desultory and changeable in their opinions, others unduly tenacious. Most men have a predilection for the tenets of their sect or party, and still more for their own inventions. Third, the idula fori are the fallacies arising from the imperfections and the abuse of language, which is an instrument of thought as well as of the communication of our thoughts. Whether it be the effect of constitution or of habit, I will not take upon me to determine, but from one or both of these causes, it happens that no man can pursue a train of thought or reasoning without the use of language. Words are the signs of our thoughts, and the sign is so associated with the thing signified that the last can hardly present itself to the imagination without drawing the other along with it. A man who would compose in any language must think in that language. If he thinks in one language what he would express in another, he thereby doubles his labor, and, after all, his expressions will have more the air of a translation than of an original. This shows that our thoughts take their color in some degree from the language we use, and that, although language ought always to be subservient to thought, Yet thought must be, at some times and in some degree, subservient to language. As a servant who is extremely useful and necessary to his master, by degrees acquires an authority over him, so that the master must often yield to the servant, such is the case with regard to language. Its intention is to be a servant to the understanding. But it is so useful and so necessary that we cannot avoid being sometimes led by it when it ought to follow. We cannot shake off this impediment. We must drag it along with us, and therefore must direct our course and regulate our pace as it permits. Language must have many imperfections when applied to philosophy, because it was not made for that use. In the early periods of society, uneducated and ignorant men used certain forms of speech to express their wants, their desires, and their transactions with one another. Their language can reach no farther than their speculations and notions, and if their notions be vague and ill-defined, the words by which they express them must be so likewise. There is reason to hope that the languages used by philosophers may be gradually improved in copiousness and in distinctness and that improvements in knowledge and in language may go hand in hand and facilitate each other. 
But I fear the imperfections of language can never be perfectly remedied while our knowledge is imperfect. However this may be, it is evident that the imperfections of language, and much more the abuse of it, are the occasion of many errors. And in many disputes which have enraged learned men, the difference has been partly, and in some wholly, about the meaning of words. John Locke found it necessary to employ a fourth part of his essay on human understanding about words, their various kinds, their imperfection and abuse, and the remedies of both, and has made many observations upon these subjects well worthy of attentive perusal. When the Trinity's podcast returns, rediscusses his fourth and final class of prejudices, a group of prejudices which is surely relevant to mistakes concerning theology. fourth class of prejudices are the idola theatri, by which are meant prejudices arising from the systems or sects in which we have been trained or which we have adopted. A false system, once fixed in the mind, becomes, as it were, the medium through which we see objects. They receive a tint from it and appear of another color than when seen by a pure light. Upon the same subject, a Platonist an Aristotelian and an Epicurean will think differently, not only in matters connected with his peculiar tenets, but even in things remote from them. A judicious history of the different sects of philosophers and the different methods of philosophizing which have obtained among mankind would be of no small use to direct men in the search of truth. In such a history, what would be of the greatest importance is not so much a minute detail of the dogmas of each sect but rather a just delineation of the spirit of the sect and of that point of view in which things appeared to its founder. As there are certain temperaments of the body that dispose a man more to one class of disease than to another, and, on the other hand, diseases of that kind, when they happen by accident, are apt to induce the temperament that is suited to them, there is something analogous to this in the diseases of the understanding." A certain complexion of understanding may dispose a man to one system of opinions more than to another, and, on the other hand, a system of opinions, fixed in the mind by education or otherwise, gives that complexion to the understanding which is suited to them. It were wished that the different systems that have prevailed could be classed according to their spirit as well as be named from their founders. Lord Bacon has distinguished false philosophy into the sophistical, the empirical, and the superstitious, and has made judicious observations upon each of these kinds. But I apprehend this subject deserves to be treated more fully by such a hand, if such a hand can be found. This week's thinking music has been Zest by Bassmatic. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track.
Next week on the Trinity's Podcast, I'll discuss what I think are some first principles or self-evident truths which are relevant to understanding Trinity and Incarnation theories. If you love the Trinity's Podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's Podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.